0: to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want
1: to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Good evening. Um, our first Bible reading is from Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 21, and that can be found on page 70 of the Pew Bibles. Exodus 16, starting from verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron... "'Say to the entire Israelite community, "'Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling.' "'While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, "'they looked toward the desert, "'and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. "'The Lord said to Moses, "'I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. "'Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, "'and in the morning you will be filled with bread. "'Then you will know that I am the Lord your God.' Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who had gathered much did not have too much, and he who had gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses and they kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell, so Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away.
2: So 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will be will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need, then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little did not have too little. Moving over to chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourselves men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else and in their prayers for you their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you thanks be to God for this for his indescribable gift Amen.
0: Well, good evening. Great to be with you. I'm Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. And we're looking at that passage from one uh, from 2 Corinthians, chapter 8 and 9 this evening. So please keep it open. A number of years ago, I was in a conversation with someone that went a bit like this. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me that Christians should be good stewards and generous with their money? Uh, the person had not long become a Christian, and they wanted to know why they had not been discipled in the ways of generosity. Um, I kind of was a bit stumped. Uh, I fumbled around a bit and said things like, well, you know, uh, when we talk about money in church, people are really uncomfortable about it. And, you know, the church actually has a pretty bad reputation in talking about money. And, and well, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable. And, and... But of course she had a point. If the gospel is going to shape us, it's got to shape all our lives, everything, including what we do with our money and our generosity and our stewardship. And it got me to thinking, I wonder if we as a culture have a bit of a blind spot when it comes to generosity. When you look up those websites that talk about the values of Australia, you read things like this freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of religion and a secular government, support for democracy, equality, egalitarianism, mutual respects, tolerance, fair play, compassion for those in need, all those kinds of values state. But nowhere do you see written on these websites, or indeed nowhere do you see described, that Australians value material wealth. One of the highest values we have is material wealth. Did you know for example that over the past decade in regards to total wealth held by Australians it's risen by 85%. In the UK and the US it's only risen by 30%. We are incredibly wealthy people in this world. What's more, we lack a kind of generosity. Despite having one of the highest incomes per capita in the world, we're becoming less and less generous as a nation. Out of the 29 wealthy OECD member nations, we have recently slipped from 17th, which is bad enough, to 20th. Why? well, actually, we like to protect our wealth. Now, perhaps that's you. Perhaps it's not. But I think we have a culture that has a bit of a blind spot and it affects all of us. How do we work on this? What do we do? What will help shake us free from this grip of materialism and Live God's way, uh, live in love for one another. Well, when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, what we discover is a case study of the Macedonian churches. It appears that the Corinthians have a bit of a blind spot. This is kind of the background to what's been happening. Paul is speaking about the Macedonian churches in this particular passage, and he's talking about a, co- a collection, a collection for the people in Jerusalem. Uh, Sometimes it's referred to as a collection to the poor saints in Jerusalem or a collection for God's people in Jerusalem. Paul has been working on a collection for the saints in Jerusalem over a number of years uh, because there are people who are very poor gathered in the church in Jerusalem. There's also been some kind of uh, suggestion that As people have gone out to the Gentile churches, it's good to be able to support the Jewish churches as well. So there's kind of a partnership developing that Paul has in mind as well. Now we think that perhaps at the time this is all happening, there is a big famine taking place uh, in Jerusalem as well. So people are starting to starve and so they, they really need the finances. Paul has actually commended the Corinthians previously. They've started a collection. They've started putting money aside in preparation for sending it to Jerusalem. But somehow, as we discover in this passage, they've stopped. They've stopped collecting for those who are poor. And so Paul wants to remind them of their commitment, but he wants to remind them in a particular way that helps them deal with their blind spot. And I think it's worth us listening in to what Paul is doing because I think it will help us deal with our blind spots as well. What I want to suggest to you tonight is three things. First of all, in this passage, we see the power for open-hearted generosity. Then we'll see the pattern for open-hearted generosity and the product of open-hearted generosity. So come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, and think about the power for open-hearted generosity. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. What becomes very apparent in this passage is it's the grace of God that is driving the Macedonian churches to give. It's at the heart of what Paul is saying. So much so, it's a bit like um, Paul has developed... Uh, we need to move the slides along. It's apparently stuck. Next one. Beautiful. It's like Paul has been building a chocolate and salted peanut caramel layer, layer cake. And I know it's going to make you hungry. Okay, that's fair enough. But it's like throughout this whole passage, grace has been oozed into every crack. It's like we've got this salted peanut caramel just oozing all the way throughout this cake. And you can see it, see, in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 6 and 9. So we urge Titus that just as he began, he should complete this among you, this act of grace. Verse 7. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel in this act of grace. In chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make every grace overflow from you. In chapter 9, verse 14 and 15. And pr- as they pray on your behalf, they will have a deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. All the way through this passage is grace. And I think the pivotal verse is actually all about grace. Come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Why has Paul chosen to do things in this way? Why has Paul decided to have grace surround his encouragement for them to be giving to the, poor, the people who are poor in Jerusalem? What Paul is doing here is he's saying the gospel of grace is more than just a truth about what God has done. It's more than just about God reaching out to us in His Son and calling us to Himself. It's more than God's unmerited favour. It's more than that in the sense that it actually needs to impact our lives. It's not just a truth we need to believe something we need to affirm with our lives. It's something that we need to experience in our hearts and our souls. Certainly, Paul wants people to give. And he's very careful to point out that he's not going to actually call people to give on any other basis than the basis of grace. You see there in verse 8, I don't want to order you to give. He could have just simply said you guys made a commitment to giving, you should be giving, I'm the apostle, I'm in charge, you give. Alternatively, he could have easily made them feel guilty and said, look, you guys are wealthy and those saints in Jerusalem are poor and why don't you support them? I mean, they're starving and you need to support them. A bit like when my parents used to say things like, you've got to eat all your food so that the people who are starving over there can somehow eat. I never quite got... I understood what was going on there. But, you know, it was meant to be a guilt trip. You've got to eat your food. Paul is not interested in guilt trips. He's interested in grace. He's interested in grace being the motivation for our generosity. And that's why at the heart of this passage, in verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. What he's saying to the Corinthians is let that truth sink deep into your heart. God, in his wonderful grace towards us, has reached out to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, in his generosity he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Dwell on that. Think of that. Of course, what Paul is doing here is echoing what he's already said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when he said, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's pointing out to the amazing sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf in order for God to call us back to himself. And he's pointing out the cost involved. And so he says, you know the grace. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Apply that to your heart. Apply that to the way you use money. Apply that to the way you think about your material wealth. Think on these things and your heart, which has a blind spot, will be reordered. I think what Paul is saying to us simply here is the solution to our stinginess, the solution to our rampant materialism is a reorientation towards the generosity of Christ in the gospel. The fact he came poor in order that we might become rich. Now the implications are many, of course, as Paul speaks about these things. But two of the implications are this. If God reached out to us and his son as he did and called us to himself, if Jesus really died in our place and God loved us that much, surely God would look after us in terms of our needs, in terms of what we need to live and what we need to earn and what we need to have. He's already looked after our most important need, being reconciled with God. Surely he can look after all our other needs. The cross proves that God cares for us. And that gives us security. And that security forces us to look at money in a completely different light. It's not going to provide us with the security that God can. perhaps money provides for you status you can look around and say hey i've got more toys than you do i have a bigger house i have more degrees i have more a better job i earn more money maybe the status is important to you or well, jesus death on the cross for you has given you a status that you can never pay for a status of a son or a daughter of the most high king that status is above every other status you could ever buy so stop struggling for status that comes with wealth and and property what's the point you've already got the best status in the world see jesus gave up everything for us he loved us so much so that we could inherit his riches, the riches of heaven. And it's as we consider that and as we consider what Jesus has done, we start to understand the riches we have in Christ already. And that liberates us from an an excessive concern about wealth and time and talents. And it motivates us completely differently in terms of what we do with our money. So I want to suggest to you this evening that the the extent to which we receive this gift of grace is the extent to which we'll have the power to become open-hearted and generous people. We'll be able to shake free from the materialism that's around us and actually bring glory to God in the way that we live our lives. Well, because this grace shapes our hearts and our lives, there's a pattern To this generosity. And actually, there's a number of patterns we could look at in the New Testament, but the particular pattern that Paul has in mind is seen here in verse 2. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty, this is speaking about the Macedonian churches, overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that they gave according to their ability and even beyond their own ability. They begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints. And not just as we had hoped, instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. The Macedonian churches are, peop- are made up of people who are giving themselves fully over to God in the midst of extreme poverty. It's unclear what kind of poverty they're in. Perhaps uh, they too are experiencing a famine. Perhaps they're also experiencing some other afflictions from those who are ruling them. Perhaps they're being persecuted as a church. Whatever is the case, somewhat embarrassingly for the Corinthian church and for us, they are begging to give. They're saying, Paul, please let us give to the Jerusalem churches. Let us even give beyond our own ability because we want to represent the grace of God and the way that it's changed our lives. Now, Paul's not saying this to manipulate them at all. He's just saying this is the way the grace of God affects you and changes you and makes you look at things differently. Differently. And he says to them, see that you excel in this grace of giving. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he is rich for your sake, he became poor. What he's talking about here is a pattern of giving sacrificially as found in Jesus. Giving not out of the extra amount that you might have left over, but giving in a way that is sacrificial. You see, Jesus didn't give out of what he could spare. It wasn't kind of the leftover bits, and he said, oh, well, I'll, I'll come to worth out of the leftover bits. You remember that wonderful passage in Philippians 2 where it says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's not just a part sacrifice. That's a full sacrifice. And that is just so challenging. Jesus' sacrifice makes me nervous. I kind of think, oh, I I can give from abundance... I can give when I've got spare. I can give when actually life's okay and I can kind of work out, there, yeah, that'll fit, that'll be fine, and I won't feel too uncomfortable. But Paul points us to the Macedonian churches and to what Christ has done and says these guys are giving sacrificially, begging for the opportunity to support those in Jerusalem. I've lost count, actually, of the times I've seen people who are really poor give sacrificially. It's embarrassing. I remember when we were uh, finishing more college. Jane and I had two kids. Uh, We were living in a house in Toongabi, Our credit card was completely maxed out. Uh, We basically had no income. We are kind of at the end. And things were looking pretty bleak. People actually inviting us out for meals (laughs) so that we could eat. It was really lovely. There was a Bible study group and they just kept inviting us over and feeding us, which was really lovely. And then one of the families in this church had four kids. One person in the family was working. Mortgage. All the challenges of family life. They came to us one day and they just said, so they're not rich, they said to us, we'd like to give you a car. This is the car they gave us. It's a pretty old car. It was yellow. And they said, we don't care what you do with it. This is what we've got to give. This is yours. And we thought, how are we going to run the car? (laughs) We don't have enough money. And then it suddenly dawned on us. We could actually sell the car. And so we did and were able to pay off our credit cards and start moving on and start working out how to live again. They were poor, but they were generous. Or I think of the minister I met in this little village in the back of Sarawak, who, when Jan and I visited the village, he was a, a pastor of a small church. He had one eye. I can remember he'd lost one eye somehow. Small little congregation in his church, but he welcomed us into his room, with open arms, and he sat us down and he said, let me give you lunch. (laughs) And lunch was rice and a banana. He really had nothing. In fact, I wondered as we left whether he would actually have anything for tea, whether he'd actually shared his day's food with us. But he wouldn't hear of us sitting with him without being generous towards us and kind towards us. This morning I heard this absolutely stunning story from Indonesia. Someone came and spoke to me after the story and spoke of a woman who worked in um, people's houses uh, who'd become a Christian. Her family had, were dirt poor. She had very, very little. But she'd become a Christian and the grace of God had touched her heart and touched her ability to give. And she was generous. One of her Muslim friends had a baby in a hospital but couldn't afford to pay the bill in the hospital. And so was going to be in debt for years because she couldn't paid, paid, pay the bill. She went and sold her wedding ring in order to pay the hospital bill. Now, I don't know about you, but that wouldn't even occur to me. That kind of generosity just wouldn't enter my head. Sell my wedding ring? Really? You see, the Macedonian church had been impacted by the gospel of grace to such an extent that even in their own poverty, their pattern was to be generous. I don't know about you, but I find that demand almost too high. When I think about my own life, and I think about what I have, and I think about the wealth I have in comparison, it kind of is very confronting, And I don't think I'm particularly good at this. And so that's why I remember words like Hebrews 12, which which helped me kind of start to understand how it might even be possible to start to live this way where we read the words, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him He endured the cross, despising shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Christ has run before me. He's gone before me. He knows what it is to give up everything. He knows what it is to serve others. He knows what it is to have joy in serving others. Actually, if you notice through the passage, there's a whole lot of stuff about joyful giving as well. He knows about that. And because I am in him... He can give me the strength by his grace and by the work of his spirit to live in a way that he's called me to live because he is the source and perfecter of my faith. Not me, he is. That's the pattern that Paul speaks of here in terms of open-hearted generosity. Generosity. Well, what's the product of open hearted generosity? Well, the truth is that money makes a significant difference uh, in ways that you might not expect. And that's what Paul does for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You might like to flip over to there. Verse 6, we start here. The point is this the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything in need, you may excel in every good work. Paul uses a harvesting image here of sowing and reaping, the idea is sowing seed and you reap what you sow. And he's talking about that in terms of generosity and giving away money. He's talking about God providing uh, to be able to sow. And he's talking about reaping from that. Now, some people have taken passages like this and applied them in horrendous ways. Uh, They've talked about the idea that if you sow, all of a sudden God will make you wealthy. So start giving your money away and God will make you wealthier and wealthier. It doesn't work. I've tried it. When I was in about fifth class, I decided that I'd save all my money, and uh, because God blessed you richly when you gave things away, I would give all my money away. And I know this doesn't sound like very much, but ten dollars was a huge amount of money for me. I put ten dollars in the plate, expecting that God would reward me tenfold. I get a hundred dollars back. It never happened. What is Paul speaking about here? Or verse 11, you will be enriched in every way for all generosity which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Sorry, verse 10. Now that the one who provides the seed for the sower and bread for the food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. As you sow generously... There's a harvest of righteousness. It's like as you are generous, God grows you up. God grows you in spiritual maturity. That's the benefit. You start growing because A, you recognise everything comes from God and B, you're just completely dependent on him for everything. And that starts to mean you grow as a Christian. It's a beautiful thing to see how open hearted generosity grows you up. Now, once again, I've seen this in lots of different ways. I remember one woman coming to an end of time at a theological college and uh, she went to pay her final fees at the administrative office, and when she got there, she overheard them speaking about the idea that, that someone one of the other students couldn't actually afford to pay. She realised as she overheard the conversation that she had exactly the amount of money that was needed but that was actually the only money that she had. And so she prayed about it and decided to give that money away. And so she paid for this other student that other student didn't know that they'd been paid for and this woman then went back to her room. When she got back to her room... The amount of money that she'd just been paid, she just paid, was sitting on her bed. She threw herself before God, trusted God, and God grew her. Now, I'm not suggesting that every time you do that, you'll find the money there. God might have actually other plans. He might say, you need to keep trusting me. But can you imagine the effect on your heart When you're generous like that and you see God at work in just amazing ways like that, can you see the way that you start to grow and become more dependent on Jesus and more dependent on what he's done for you? And you can start to see him at work in so many different ways. It's a beautiful thing. Not only do you grow though, as the hungry saints receive their food, their gifts, Paul tells us their hearts and voices will express themselves in thanksgiving to God. Verse 13, because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone. See, what Paul is saying here is when we opt out of giving... We opt out of the privilege of meeting human needs and also denying ourselves the honour of promoting God's glory. You see, God uses you to promote his glory in other people's lives when they see prayers answered. So as people receive gifts and they recognise that God has provided for them, they give glory to God. By not giving those gifts, then you're missing out on joining in in giving God's glory. You see how it works? It works. Now, it's a beautiful thing to watch, isn't it, in, our, um, in the way that we do things here as we support missionaries in different places. So, for example, as we support our missionaries in Chile, there are people there who are hearing about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and giving thanks to God for the generosity of those who are supporting our missionary friends there. There are those who work in EU here in Sydney University who have now come to know because of the work they're doing, have come to know and love Jesus Christ and are going to the utter ends of the earth. There are people all over the world now giving thanks to God for the generosity of places like ours. Wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Isn't that a beautiful thing to see that kind of thing happen? It's no wonder then Paul says the final thing here that we're going to look at this evening He says, as people give thanks to God for your generosity, there's also kind of a deep affection, a partnership that develops in verse 14. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have a deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Notice it's always pointing back to God and his grace and what he's done. It's giving glory to God. But there's this beautiful partnership that starts to develop a partnership between Christians as they support each other, and in particularly in this instance, across cultural divides, Jewish and Gentile working together, Gentile and Jewish rather, working together, supporting each other, encouraging one another. Money can have a huge effect on our world and bring much praise to God because of people's generosity. If you're a regular here, you might have an Elvanto account. I hope you do, because that tells you about rostering and things like that. On that account at the moment, there's a little PDF that you can download about being patrons of the gospel. Basically, in that PDF is a whole lot of stories about people who have been generous all their lives and changed the world for the gospel. One person I was reading about recently is a guy called Humphrey... Monmouth. That's not him. That's William Tyndale. William Tyndale was a guy who translated the Bible into English. He was finally finally uh, eventually killed for the fact that he did that. But what he wanted to see is the people in the UK come to know and understand Jesus because they could read the scriptures for themselves. How was he going to do that? He could translate it. He knew how to do that, but he didn't have the finances in order for people to receive Bibles. So Humphrey Monmouth met up with Tyndale. Humphrey was a guy who was a merchant who owned a number of boats, was quite wealthy, and he paid for a whole lot of Bibles to be printed in Europe. And then he smuggled them into boats across Europe. England. And then they distribute them throughout England so that people for the very first time could read the Bible in their own language and come to know Jesus in a very different way than what they'd heard previously. As I said, he was eventually killed for doing this. But two years after he was killed, the King of England, because of what had been taking place, ordered that every church should have its own copy of the English Bible because of Henry's generosity thousands and thousands of people got to hear the word of God and guess what do you have a bible is it in english part of the reason you have that bible and the part of the reason you can read it in english is because of people like William Tyndale and Humphrey Monmouth. Humphrey knew that money matters and he used it in a way that would bring praise and thanksgiving to God down through the years. What does that mean for you and me? What does that look like in our own lives? Perhaps you're not a merchant seaman, you don't have lots of ships harboured somewhere? I suspect none of you do, but perhaps you can come and tell me if you do. Perhaps you don't have a huge inheritance, perhaps you're not particularly wealthy, or perhaps you do. How does this work out in your life? What does it mean with what you have? I started off with a story of speaking about someone who had talked about how the grace of God had affected their lives and how they were thinking about generosity and stewardship and how they wanted to be obedient to God. The way they worked it out was to say this. I'm actually on an income which comes in and out. It's not consistent every week. I don't get the same amount of money every week. But what they said is I've determined that I need to be generous with what I have. So I've decided that every time I get an income I will first of all work out how I can be generous with it and then work out how I can live the rest of my life. It's remarkable, isn't it? That's a grace-shaped heart. Someone who's thinking through what it means to look like following Jesus. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're in a different position where you haven't sat down and planned your year and thought about the income that you get. Why not start with planning how you're going to be generous with what God's given you because of his grace towards you and then think about how you might spend it on the things that you need to spend it on week by week. Whatever the case is, we are called to generosity. We are called to open-hearted generosity as God's people because of the grace that's shown in us in Jesus Christ. Yes, that will involve sacrifice. But yes, it will also result in a harvest of righteousness, in the thanksgiving of others, in a partnership that speaks of the glory and love of God. And so this evening, I can I ask you to consider in your own hearts what it is that you're doing about generosity. Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit
1: neac.com.au.